Welcome. We're glad you're here. If you're visiting with us for the first time, I want to just invite you at this point. You'll be invited later as well to this little table on the way out. Uh, you can grab some information about who we are as a church. I hope you'll get some sense in these next few minutes of who we are as a church, the importance that we place on God's Word. Um, we're going to spend the next few minutes in God's Word. We have no uh, smoke and mirrors, light shows, no tap dancing, no uh, dance line, none of that. It's just, just exposing God's Word, doing all that we can to make sense of what walking in it will look like, and then asking, Lord, please do this in us. That's, that's as simple as it is. And that, coupled with sandwiched in, uh, worship and song and worship and giving, that's what we're about. It's very simple. And, um, but hopefully you'll get a sense of who we are in these next few minutes. Um, let me begin with prayer, this, or let me begin the sermon with prayer, and uh, then we'll climb into our passage. Lord, this morning we want to first of all pray for those who are dealing with loss this week, terrible tragedy. Um, in the news this week, Lord, we, uh, among many, uh, one that is just so hard to even make sense of, hard to sort, Lord, we are thankful that uh, you weren't snoozing, thankful that you weren't off the job, uh, thankful that you are always at work, and that you and can and actually do work wonderful things through tragedy and loss. Lord, we know and enjoy that you didn't ordain this, but that you somehow allowed it for some purpose, that, Lord, I pray that folks will see in time. I pray that the, the, the church um, can come alongside families that are trying to make sense of this and a community that's trying to make sense of this loss, and that the church, in a, in a situation that seems hopeless, can bring a message of hope and, and will bring a message of hope. And Lord, I pray that in that, that it will not return void, that you will, uh, your word will do what it does, that will do the sharp work of cutting uh, deep within and exposing the thoughts and intentions of the heart uh, and drawing people to your son, Lord. I, we beg for that. We beg for great and glorious things through tragedy um, and pray for those that are near uh, to this loss, Lord. Um, also this morning, Lord, we want to pray for another church, some, somewhat in our community, praying for Believers Baptist and Emory. Uh, for Jason Rowland, Lord, I'm thankful for a like-minded brother. I'm thankful for a guy that is is really, uh, he and his uh, fellow elders at uh, Emory, in, em in Emory at Believers Baptist are really about uh, the simple work of walking through your word and walking in your word. And uh, Lord, I'm thankful that they um, are faithful in Emory. Lord, I pray that you would uh, bless their work, bless their ministry, Lord, for your name's sake, for your glory, that they would have wonderful problems like seating issues and parking issues and uh, kids' space issues and um, baptistry, baptistry issues, these things that are just markers of your uh, growth and your work, Lord. We, we ask you to do great things for your namesake and your glory through a faithful ministry. I pray for Jason, too, as he's about the work, Lord, that you would remind him that he is a soldier of Christ and that he will not do just fulfill a J-O-B. And Lord, I pray the same thing for myself and for other pastors in this community, that we will think like warriors that we will think like faithful soldiers. Lord, guard us from just showing up and just trying to um, keep the boat from getting too rocked. Maybe rocked enough for a little conviction now and then, but not too rocked. Guard us, Lord, from this safe place um, and guide us into a place of uh, faithfully leading your people in harm's way. Lord, I'm asking you to bless, bless Jason and his family and bless his marriage. Lord, bless his ministry uh, and bless Believers Baptist. Lord, pray that you would bless our time and guide us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Turn to Ephesians chapter 6. When I was in the Marine Corps, I had a, uh, a guy and a quote that influenced me a lot. Um, Giuseppe Garibaldi was his name. He was a general an Italian general in the 1800s, um, he led a troop, a, a unit that was called the Hunters of the Alps. Just the name just, just sounds like some, there's going to be a real manly connection here. Um, there was a quote that I thought about often when I was in the Marine Corps, and it's one that, uh, ironically, I've thought about since then. Garibaldi said to his troops, he said, I offer neither pay nor provisions nor quarters. 
Rather, I offer hunger, force marches, battle, and death. He said, let him who loves his country with his heart and not his lips only follow me. I thought about a guy that had that kind of resolve and that kind of commitment and that kind of um, white-hot focus about his purpose as a soldier, as a general. Um, it influenced me as a Marine lieutenant leading infantry Marines, and I thought about times often where I needed to remind Marines that they were Marines. Uh, one of the things I found that Marines came out of infantry or uh, their infantry training a lot of times, they came out of boot camp and then their infantry training with just a lot of vim and vinegar. Man, they're ready to go get it done, ready to go tackle the hill, ready to do what Marines do. And then before long, they found themselves doing things like cleaning weapons for hours, Q-tips, cleaning their barracks for hours, having inspections. There's sort of this busy work, this sort of military busy work that guys can find themselves doing. And before long, the vim and vinegar is gone, man. Like, what in the world did I sign up for? This is ridiculous. This is lame. I signed up for a poster. This poster influenced me, and I wanted to go do this thing. And they find themselves showing up, and, man, make sure your barracks are straight. Make sure your uniform's tidy. Make sure your boots are polished. Make sure your weapon's clean and that there's no carbon residue in there. Pull out your Q-tips. I saw guys that sort of lost their fire. So I actually started a little thing that, within our unit that, that we called the uh, He-Man Woman Haters Club. We liked women. I mean, it wasn't like it was against women. There were only men in this unit, by the way. It's an infantry unit in the Marine Corps. Um, it wasn't anything against women. It was, I think, it was Little Rascals had the He-Man Woman Haters Club, you know, and so we kind of connected to that to that title anyway, but our goal in life really from week to week and day to day was to go do hard things that were harder. They were so hard that you couldn't be thinking about your girlfriend or your wife while you're doing it. <laughs> you're not thinking about like some cookies or some, you know, something like that. that she, she could make me some cookies or something. In fact, the, even the Jodies that we sang reminded us of uh, the difficulty that we were facing and the identity as Marines to do hard things. So we did this, this little... He-Man Woman Hairs Club, we basically, over the course of a few years, tackled every single peak on Camp Pendleton. If you've ever been to the West Coast in California, you know that Camp Pendleton's pretty hilly, and it actually has little mountains all over it. And we had a goal to run up every single one of them, and we did it. We did it, and sometimes more than once. And it reminded the Marines of who they were. We did hard things for the purpose of reminding us what we signed up for. We didn't sign up to clean weapons. We signed up to do hard things and to prepare ourselves for combat, for battle. I mean, really, that's what we were about. I feel like that served us well as we went into Somalia and did a hard thing there in Somalia in 1992. Uh, Marines, I saw, were able to connect to something that was deep down that had been um, sort of facilitated through doing hard things and reminded, reminding them of who they were. Um, I really enjoyed doing that, doing those hard things with Marines in that uh, season of my life for about five years. Um, I've been doing this for 15 years, and I've had people ask me over the last 15 years uh, about why the, why the difference? Why would you go from being a Marine infantry officer to being a pastor? This seemed the opposite. And I've been able to tell them over the years that, no, it's actually very similar. It's a lot more similar than it is different. This notion of a pastor that's just sort of kind of just, you know, trying to make people feel better about themselves and, you know, um, show up when people are feeling bad and, you know, kind of give them a word of encouragement. That's not a bad thing. That's kind of a kind of a chaplain image. But the pastor, the biblical pastor, and what a guy we're seeing right here in the book of Ephesians these last few weeks and today is a guy that's calling his people to a martial call. If you read the book of Ephesians and you only get as far as chapter 6, then it's really genteel. I like that word. Very gentlemanlike. Genteel. Very respectable. And we talk about leading a holy life and leading a life of unity. You know, Jews and Gentiles getting along. That's quaint. Um, husbands loving their wives as Christ loved the church. That sounds awesome. I love that. Wives following their husbands and children obeying their parents. Everything's really genteel until you get to chapter 6. And then there's a martial call to be soldiers of Christ. 
man, people ask me, what are you doing here now in the ministry now that you've been, after you've been leading Marines? I'm like, man, it's a beautiful transfer. The only difference is Marines know they're Marines. I, I found that far easier than this. Far easier than this because we migrate to thinking like civilians. Many of us never even leave, depart thinking like civilians. All we do is think like civilians. And never realizing, oh, we're in harm's way. There's a work that we're about that means difficulty, that means struggle, that means putting on armor. Where there's these forces that are working, doing, doing everything they can to foil us with temptation, with despair, with everything in between. So, man, I think there's a lot of transfer, but I found that a whole lot easier than I find this. Because it's not just y'all that migrate to thinking like civilians. I do the very same thing. I do the very same thing. I didn't come here thinking that way. I came here thinking like a Marine uh, infantry officer. But in these last few years, honestly, I've gotten, begun to think a whole lot more like a civilian. Scott Sutton and Lindsay are doing a starting points class. Some of you are in this starting points class. Some of you have gone through this starting points class. And Scott um, has the beautiful um, privilege and opportunity, really I would call it, of reminding these people who are going through this course to sort of learn who we are as a people, of who we've been. And it's in this last week that Scott, this last Sunday that led to Scott bringing something up on Tuesday in our staff meeting and before our staff meeting saying, man, we're, I'm reminding our people of us being agile and mobile and responsive and pushing back into very difficult, challenging, less than easy situations. And yet I've kind of found ourselves being limited by our building. You may not realize this, but we have been. Some of it, it's, it's invisible to a lot of us, including myself until Scott reminded us of that. And then we began to start thinking about some things, these space issues that we're having. That they're not space issues. If kingdom, if the kingdom owns property near this building, then it's kingdom property, including Ben McGraw's house about a mile from here. I'm going to volunteer up some other houses, including the Stevens house about a half mile from here, including the Fulps house about a mile from here. Man, we got kingdom property all over the place. We don't have to be limited by this building. Thankfully, Scott reminded me, oh, yeah, we're soldiers. This is supposed to be hard. We live in tents. We bivouac. We pick up our stuff, and then we move. We're agile and mobile and responsive because we're serving in harm's way. What you don't realize, what you may not realize, is we're living here in the buckle of the Bible belt, is that we're living in a community that has been largely fooled by Satan. I, I already told you, I'm not this big Satan, uh, darkness, uh, um, uh, spiritual warfare kind of guy. But man, I've lived here for 15 years, and I've realized that, man, most of the folks in our community have fallen to the lie of this thing called churchless Christianity. And I'll put little air quotes around Christianity. Because if you leave the church out of Christianity, you have nothing. If you're not walking with God's people, you're not walking with God's people. And we live in a community that's been fooled and been duped. People, we are in harm's way. I'm not just talking about things that you're tempted with at work. I'm talking about things in our context. In the buckle of the Bible belt, most people that we do life with as neighbors and as workmates have no use for what we're doing right here. But they'll tell you, I like Jesus though. In fact, I'm heaven bound. Man, I needed that reminder from Scott Sutton. We're in harm's way. We're soldiers. We're warriors we're not looking for ease. We're looking for faithfulness in hard places. And we're in a hard place right now. So this is a timely passage that we're in. Ephesians chapter 6. These last couple of weeks, we began in verse 10. Let's go there. and let's Just for sake of context, background, begin in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Remember, we're shifting from genteel to martial. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand firm. 
Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. These last few weeks, we've connected to this passage so far up to that point and realized, first of all, that the main point of the passage in verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We're in harm's way, people. You're not civilians. You're in harm's way now. There's schemes and these agents, these ancient agents that are a whole lot smarter than you that are about the work, the soul work, and they don't even need sleep. And there's a bunch of them. They outnumber you. And their sole job is to foil you. But God has given us something that we can put on that we may be able to stand against those schemes. And then the central imperative of the entire passage is in verse 14, the word stand. I love the image. I have this image. And in fact, I found this word stand is used all through the book of Revelation. It's used about the saints who defeat the beast. It's used about the Lord, the warrior, standing as if slain. Man, it's a beautiful image of this warrior who's doing his job and standing strong. Man, I love the image. The pieces of armor that we considered last week were the belt of truth, breastplate of righteousness, and gospel shod feet. I had some real handy images uh, prepared that we didn't actually use, but uh, we're just going to throw them up briefly this week. The belt of truth, you can go ahead and put those up, Ethan. The first one. The belt of truth is the soldier of Christ is to wear truthfulness and faithfulness. It's an attribute belonging to the soldier, moving truthfully, moving in the light, moving faithfully as a strong defense against Satan. The second piece of armor is the breastplate of righteousness. The soldier of Christ is to walk in righteous works, ones that you were actually made for, Ephesians 2 verse 10. You were created for these great righteous works. And in doing those things that you were made to do as a result of your salvation, not adding to your salvation, in walking in those things that you were created to do, you'll find protection from the wiles of Satan. Man, a great offense is the best defense. The third thing that we considered last week were gospel-shod feet. The soldier of Christ is to be conditioned by the gospel so that you stand ready to serve in kingdom work. You've got some traction. This little image I was going to show you last week, those little studs in there, those are metal studs that went through the sole of the Doc Martens so that you could actually grip and get some traction. Man, being conditioned by the gospel means that you're going to have traction doing kingdom work. You stand ready to serve. With the emphasis on wearing the whole armor, we're going to take this morning, the rest of our morning, looking at the rest of the armor. And I'm going to do it a little bit out of order. Okay, so let's just go to our passage. Verses 16 and 17 is where we're going to be for the rest of the morning. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with with which you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. I'm going to go a little bit out of order this morning. The, The order of these items is less important than that they're all being worn. So for the sake of our time together, for the sake of your attentiveness, I want to start with the fifth and sixth article, the helmet of salvation and then the sword of the spirit, and we're going to finish with the shield of faith. Okay, so first of all, we're going to follow the same format that we did last week. We're going to talk about the article, and then we're going to talk about the metaphor. Okay, so first of all, the article, the helmet of salvation. The helmet was made of bronze. It had cheek pieces and a crest that either faced forward or side to side, depending on your rank and unit. This guy that, you go ahead and go ahead and put up my, my guy that's wearing all that stuff. This guy, I really hoped he'd had a better tan on his legs, but that's about all I could do. In fact, I asked Casey to see if she could Photoshop a tan in. This is about the best she could do. So maybe Ethan can fiddle with that, but we'll just leave it. We'll imagine that he's bronzed, okay? This guy's wearing the helmet that we're talking about. It probably wouldn't have been that shiny. It probably would have looked pretty patinaed. It's made of bronze, had cheek pieces, and a crest. This crest would either face forward or to the side, depending on the unit, depending on the rank. And unlike, this is, let's talk about the metaphor now. Unlike the other articles that you actually take up, this article is actually to be received. Okay, the word there in our ESV says take, but it's a different word that's used about these other articles of clothing. It's a word that actually can be better, better translated, I believe, as receive. 
It's the middle voice imperative, which is sort of reflexive. And there's a beauty in that. Because salvation, among all these other things, you can take up some righteous acts. You can take up some truthfulness and some faithfulness. You can take up gospel-shod shoes. You could or shoes the gospel to take up and put on your feet. But when it comes to salvation, man, you just receive it because it's God's work start to finish through and through. He who began a good work will be faithful to complete it. He's the author and perfecter of our faith. That's a beautiful image in just taking this helmet of salvation. Take it. Receive it is the better word. And receiving this helmet, here's what it means. It means a mindfulness of the fact that when you're united to Christ by faith, you were made alive together with Christ already. So whatever battle you're facing, you've already been made alive together with Christ. You've been raised with Christ already when you were united to Christ by faith. You've been seated with Christ, in fact, as the, with the victor already. And that's going to change the way you fight. That's going to change the way you handle yourself, realizing these things have happened already. This helmet protects you from the attacks of Satan because God has already rescued you from the bondage to the prince of the power of the air. Amen? Huh. Man, I'll receive that. That's good medicine. Put it right here. Put it right here next to my head where I'm thinking about it often, where I can remember it. Receiving this helmet means you have every reason to be confident in the outcome of the battle, knowing that the war has already been won. Now, the second item that we're going to consider this morning is the sword of the Spirit. Take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. This is the only offensive article of armor uh, listed. Um, that it's it's um, uh, illustrated here when this guy is a couple foot long sword. There were something that's very different. That's called a little knife that a, a soldier might carry. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about a real sword. And there are actually two different words that are used. Let's talk about the metaphor here. There are two different words that are used for word. Okay, we're talking about the word of God. There are two different words that Paul uses even in the book of Ephesians. He uses the word logos. That might be a word that you're familiar with. He also uses the word rhema. Okay, the word logos. Let me just show you a little picture of what, how this word is used. Flip back a few pages to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word, the logos of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Now that's one use. Paul uses a word that is often used interchangeably, logos and rhema. But in this case, he uses logos to speak of the gospel of salvation, the good news of Christ crucified and risen. That's not the word that he uses over here in Ephesians chapter 6. The word that he uses in Ephesians chapter 6 is the same word that he uses in Ephesians chapter 5. Flip back to Ephesians chapter 5. We're just taking a moment to distinguish between what word Paul is using here. And then we're going to move on to our last article. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the rhema. That's the word that's used here in this sword of the Spirit, this word of God, the word rhema. Now, I'm just going to offer this, this thought for husbands that are thinking that your job as a husband is to remind your wife of the gospel day in, day out, no matter what her circumstances are. If she's feeling bad, if she's tired, if the kids are struggling with something, our schoolwork is overwhelming, just reminding her the gospel is a good thing, but she needs more than logos. She needs some rhema. That's what's being spoken of here. Something that's sort of more um, uh, complete. Okay, the logos, the gospel of Christ crucified and risen is a great thing to remind your wife of from day to day. But what's even better is taking her to the full council, the rhema, to help her do battle in each of these situations. I think it's an important distinction. In this sense, it seems rhema has a fuller sense than just the gospel. And a husband reminding his wife of the gospel is doing a good thing, but there's a lot of other word, rhema, 
out there to deal with the gamut of issues that she and we face in life. I heard a guy that say one time in a deacon's meeting, all I need is John 3.16. Okay, that's logos. Man, I've, John 3.16 is dear. But thankfully, we've got a lot of other Bible there. We've got a lot of rhema to work with. So that's what we're speaking about here, the sword of the Spirit that is the rhema of God. Now, here's just a thought on this. I think it's in the sense here that we use the sword, the rhema of God. At the very least, it's to be wielded to lovingly share the good word of the gospel. At the very least. But it looks like a readiness to wield the full counsel in all matters pertaining to life and death. That's what it means to wield the sword of the Spirit, the rhema of God. Knowing that it's in those daily, common Seemingly routine and mundane issues of life where Satan waylays people. That it's in the dailiness of life and in the common and routine things that you need to wield the sword of the Spirit, the rhema of God, to bring some wisdom into those circumstances. I'm just going to tell you right now, this takes work. This takes work. And realize what we're doing every Sunday, what we're doing every Sunday at 9.30 in here, which may go off campus at some point, where we might take advantage of some kingdom properties in somebody's homes, like the Fulps or the McGraws. Or Fulps are like, man, I didn't even have a heads up about this. <laughs> where we might uh, take advantage of some of those sites. What's happening at 9.30 on Sundays, Sunday mornings is we're teaching you to wield the rhema of God. That's what's happening right here, too, every single Sunday. We're teaching you to wield the rhema of God. It's what happens on Wednesday nights when I'm meeting with youth, teaching them to wield, and Neil's with me, teaching them to wield the rhema of God in daily circumstances of life so that they're not waylaid by Satan. That's what it means to wield the sword of the Spirit. I'll leave you with just a brief image of what this looks like, and then we're going to look at our last article of armor. In Matthew chapter 4, you can turn there or you can listen. It'll be a familiar passage to you, likely. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Okay, if you for a second think you're going to get away with something that God subjected his own son to, then you've been fooled. We're in harm's way. His own son was led into the wilderness, notice, by the Spirit to be tempted by Satan. Okay, let's see what happens. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hung, hungry, hungry, hangry. I bet he was all those things. 40 days and 40 nights? Man, if I go about four hours, I'm hangry. 40 days. And the tempter came in that time of weakness. Just think of the contrast. Adam and Eve, man, they're enjoying a flowery garden full of uh, fruit-laden trees hanging on every branch. And they're duped by Satan on full bellies. Man, this is a new and better Adam right here, isn't he? 40 days fasting, 40 days hangry, and he's tempted by Satan. And let's see how it goes down. The tempter came and said, if you're the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. He could have said, ah, that's a great point. I didn't think about that. Shazam. But man, a new and better Adam didn't do that. He answered, it is written. He wielded the rhema of God. And watch what he says. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every rhema word that comes from the mouth of God. That's wielding the sword of the Spirit. And man, our Savior illustrated it for us. And he goes through the rest of the passage, wielding it and doing business, the sharp end of his business end, dealing with Satan. Man, it's beautiful. The sword of the Spirit. You're being equipped each week to wield it. So come attentive. Come ready. Bring your journal. Study it between Sundays. It matters. You're not just collecting data. This is sword drill. All right, the last thing, the shield of faith. And here's where I want to spend the rest of our morning. We're going to go back and just look at verse 16. Let me read it again just for the sake of having it fresh on our minds as we dive into it. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. Okay, the shield that's spoken of here is the larger shield that's about two and a half feet wide and about four feet long. This guy is holding one of those. Okay, it's a long joker. It's about a body width wide. Um, this, is, this is nicely illustrated up here. They're made of wood. Okay, made of wood and covered with leather. Okay, likely some sort of 
uh, design on there, depending on, I guess, what they're allowed to put on there. Um, you would think, too, that made of wood, if they're made of wood, that flaming arrows would be the projectile of choice as a wooden shield on fire is quickly a drop shield. I mean, you can think about how that goes down. The enemy is facing an army that's, where, that's carrying wooden shields. Go, hey, man, I'm going to show this joker. Hand me your Bic lighter, and we're going to take care of those wooden shields. Okay, so that's exactly what Satan does with surgical attacks on God's people. They're holding wooden shields. We're going to take care of business. Hand me that Bic lighter. There's some accounts of soldiers soaking the leather in water so that the arrows would extinguish. But if, if you've, or you can imagine what battle might be like, that'd be a real difficult place to keep your shield wet. Hey, can you pour some water on my shield so I can go back into battle? That's dumb. All right, you'd know that flaming darts would be bad news for wooden shields. Now, we have something different in the shield of faith because we're promised here that the shield of faith will extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. So let's talk about the metaphor. What is this? This isn't referring to objective faith. Okay, here's a passage that illustrates objective faith. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the objective faith. Okay, that's in uh, 2 Corinthians. That's an example of objective faith. This thing that's outside of you, that's this gospel, this good news of Christ. Are you in the, are you in the way is a great way to, to ask the question. Not in the way of someone, but in the way of following Christ. In the faith. That's the objective version. We're not talking about the objective version here. Like the other items that we've listed last week, it's referring to an attribute of the warrior. This is talking about subjective faith belonging to the warrior who is trusting God. Here's what it looks like. It is a trust that the soldier of Christ places in Christ. That's the shield of faith. Now, I'm going to see if I can simplify this even a little bit further. Because I know when we use words, turn to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 3. I know when we use words like faith and trust... And things like that, they're sort of church words that they can be hard to really visualize. So I want to show you what this looks like. There's a, a, the book of Hebrews really has a lot to do with faith and trust. The book of Hebrews was written by a Hebrews, uh, we don't know who wrote it, but it was likely the pastor of the Hebrew church. There's a strong possibility this Hebrew church was hunkered down in Rome. And I mean literally hunkered down. Because part of the problem is they were just hunkered down behind closed doors and they weren't being salty, bright, and aromatic. And they were on the bubble for faith because it's hard to be a Christian in the Roman Empire. They're looking right across the river at the Roman Forum, likely. The Hebrew quarters of Rome was right across the river. Okay, and it's in this context that the Hebrews preacher is saying, don't stop believing. Man, that's a cheesy song, isn't it? I wish I knew even who it was. I'd start singing it. Keep believing God. That's essentially the message of Hebrews. And he's reminding them of what happened to their forefathers in the wilderness some um, 1,500 years earlier. Okay, Some 1,500 years earlier, he takes them back as a reminder in chapter 3. And here's, here's the appeal. I want you to follow this as best as you can. And I'll see if I can help you kind of tease it out. There's a, there's a very important point that I'm making here that I, I really hope that you get about this shield of faith, okay? Kind of a parachuting in to verse 6. Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Kind of keep an eye on the house. We are his house, okay? We are where God dwells, Christ dwells, as in the people of God. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Let me give you a visual. If indeed we're holding fast to our shield, of faith. Okay, I'm importing an image into here because it's a nice transfer. I'm going to reread it because I want you to envision holding this shield. We are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope, i.e. our shield of faith. And then he reminds them of what happened 1,500 years earlier to their forefathers. He says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. That's what he's speaking about 1,500 years later or 1,500 years earlier on the day of testing in the wilderness when the nation of Israel says, where's God? I mean, I know he led us out of Egypt like yesterday, but where's he now? I'm hungry and I'm thirsty. 
and I sure miss the leeks and melons of Egypt. It's really pretty ridiculous, but it's exactly what Hebrew church was about to do, and it's exactly what we do when we stop believing God. Let's see what unfolds. Do not harden your hearts as in the day of rebellion, on the day of testing in the wilderness, whether your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And the point he's making here, the reason they're not going to enter his rest is because they stopped believing him. They stopped believing him. They put down the shield of faith. Watch what happens. The Hebrews preacher says, take care, brothers. Take care, Hebrew church, that can see the Roman form right across the river. Take care, brothers, being Christians in this really hard place, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Take care. Don't set that shield down. Because that setting that shield down will lead you to falling away from the living God. Exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ's watch, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. We have come to share in Christ, if indeed we continue to hold on to our shield of faith. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Instead, believe him. That's what the Hebrew preacher says. Believe him. Later in chapter 4, he says, verse 3, he says, For we who have believed enter his rest, i.e. his promised land. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest due to unbelief. Let me see if I can kind of help you connect these dots here. The nation of Israel proved faithless in the wilderness when they did not believe God. Okay? That he would provide for them and tend to them. And as a result, they're subjected to 40 years in the wilderness because they didn't believe him. And in the end, they didn't get to enter the promised land. They did not enter his rest. If you've read the story, you know how the grumbling goes. God, you've left us and forsaken us after all. Man, I sure wish I had the leeks and melons of Egypt. I sure miss being back in Egypt and making bricks. But the Hebrews preacher is appealing to them, reminding them to believe God. Don't lose faith that God is a good father, even when your eyes and ears and senses tell you otherwise. When he says he will never leave you or forsake you, he meant it and he means it, people of God. That's what the Hebrew preacher is saying to them, and that's what I think I'm wanting to appeal to you with today. Hold on to that shield of faith. Keep believing him. When he commands you to walk in his ways and obey his commands, he's not holding out on you and withholding the good stuff. Believe him. He's calling you to the good life. When he says, don't eat from that one tree, he says, instead, turn around and eat from all these others, these fruit-laden trees. You can know that he's not holding out on you. He's really calling you to a blessedness that will give you strength against the wiles and the lies of Satan, knowing that God's not holding out on you. Believe him. When he commands you to walk in his ways, believe him. He's commanding you into the blessed life. Man, he's not holding out on you. Will a good father do that? Would a good father say, you know, man, I sure hope they don't figure out that the real good stuff is in that one tree. I sure hope they don't figure out that the real good stuff is back in Egypt. He's not holding out on them. So believe God. Here's something that might be more easy, easily grasped. When he calls you to save sex for marriage, guess what? He's not holding out on you. Young people. He's not holding out on you. He says, stay away from that one tree. And he gives you a beautiful garden to enjoy in the meantime until the time is right. He's not holding out on you. What I promise you, if you partake of something that's meant for then, is you will have heartache now. That's a promise. Believe him and withstand the lies and wiles of Satan. Now. 
Do you understand what I'm saying? We're in harm's way right now. Isn't that the message now for young people? Go ahead and have sex, man. It's right here. Why not? Everybody else is doing it. But our God says, no. Believe me now. That's for then. Let's think about something practical, too. When he promises it'll go well with you when you honor your father and mother. Guess what? Young people, kids and young people and even adults whose parents are still living. He's not holding out on you. He's not lying to you. You can actually believe him. He's not thinking, I hope they're on to me eventually, or I hope they don't get on to me eventually and learn that the, really the good stuff is to, into treating their parents like you know what. That's really going to be satisfying. It's really going to make for a great life. I hope they don't find me out. I just really want to guide them into this miserable, miserable place of honoring their father and mother. He's not holding out on you. You can believe him now. And that will give you some strength in the wiles of Satan that says, God wanted you to honor your parents if they were honorable. <laughs> Surely God didn't say to honor those two. You see what I'm saying? Believe God. That's the shield of faith that will protect you from the wiles and the fiery darts, the surgical darts of Satan. Not those parents. He wasn't talking about those parents. The shield of faith will help you stand in the tempting day. It will help you stand in the day of false teaching. The shield of faith will help you stand in the day of persecution. The shield of faith will help you stand in the day of doubt. And the shield of faith will help you stand in the day of despair. And if you haven't felt any of those things, if you haven't experienced any of those things, man, you're living under a rock. I don't know how you've avoided those things. But if you haven't connected the dots, those things are the very things that he's ordained as the context for you to stand. <laughs> you don't have to get waylaid by those things. Man, you can stand holding fast to the shield of faith. Man, I, that's the point of the morning. That's the point of the morning. That's the central point in the morning. And the really why, where I wanted to end the morning. That's why I wanted to end with the shield of faith because I think that's the lie of Satan. You can trace every sin back to not believing God. You can trace every point of despair, every point of, of, of loss where Satan has waylaid you to ultimately what happened is you didn't believe God. So grab that shield and hold fast to it. Now, I am going to close with this thought, and then we're going to have our supper. One of the things that I think we struggle with as folks that are prone to think like civilians, myself included, I can think like a civilian in Greenville, Texas, is I'm not sure that we understand what it means to stand. I think that we might be reading this passage last week and this week and maybe even the week before as we sort of eased into it. As We may not understand what it means to stand. We as Christians in the year 2018 might be surprised at the fiery trial as though something strange was happening to us. Anybody else ever get surprised by that? Well, 15 or no, 1,000, no, 2,000 years ago, Peter said, don't be surprised by that. And it's interesting that he used the word fiery trial. Man, let me just encourage you with this thought when it comes to standing, wearing your armor. There's no armor that actually makes you invisible to Satan. I can't remember what movie I saw recently where there's this invisibility cloak. Maybe it's Harry Potter or some weird thing like that. This invisibility cloak. There's no invisibility cloak in the armor. Well, I wish it is. I'm looking for it. It's not there. It's not there. Job was visible. Adam was visible. Christ was visible, driven into the wilderness by the Spirit. There's no such thing as invisibility. The goal of armor isn't to keep you from avoiding the evil day. It's going to happen. I can make you that promise. But the charge is to stand in the evil day. Standing is moving faithfully in the job loss. Standing is moving faithfully in the marital struggle. In it, while you're neck deep in it, right middle of it. While you have every opportunity to feel like it's hopeless, standing is believing him and trusting him that he has not left you or forsake you, forsaken you. That's standing. 
Standing is moving faithfully in the health issue, in the depression, in the anxiety. Standing is moving faithfully in the strong temptation. And this armor is what you'll need to move like Job in the struggle. I don't know how many years ago it was that we lost Keith McCord. Keith and um, his family were part of our church family years ago. Those of that have been here, I would say it's probably more than 10 years ago, if I were to guess. Keith and his family came to Cross Point, and Keith had already been through cancer once and was in remission. He'd gone through treatment and was in remission. He's a young man. He and his wife hadn't been married, Stephanie. He and Stephanie hadn't been married long, and he'd already gone through cancer once, melanoma, and a very aggressive form of cancer. It was in remission when they came to Cross Point, and it came back while we were here or while he was here at Crosspoint. It came back, and he was losing the battle with cancer. And we had a Sunday where he shared testimony with us. And it was in this old building over here. I, I, I'll never forget the day that a pale, ashen, stick of a man, Keith McCord, with his wife, I can't remember if um, the little, what's his boy, Lincoln. I can't remember if Lincoln had been born yet. But he was close if he hadn't been. Little wee, wee baby. See, six months born at that point. Keith stood, frail body, stick of a man. I'll never forget him saying the words. Though he slay me, I will trust him. Man, he's held on to that shield of faith. He stood well in the evil day. He died well. That's standing, people. That's standing. Standing while you're undergoing treatment. Believing God while you're digging your way out of debt. Believing God while you're working in a job you don't, don't, don't enjoy. Believing God while you're struggling in your marriage. While you're depressed. While you're fleeing from strong temptation. That's standing in the evil day behind the shield of faith, wearing the full armor, the belt of truthfulness, the breastplate of righteousness, the gospel-shod feet, receiving the helmet of salvation, and wielding the sword of the Spirit. Let's pray. God, I pray that these last couple of sermons will remind us that we are in harm's way. God, I pray these last couple of sermons, too, will remind us that we're not, it's not hopeless. That we may be outnumbered by forces that are ancient and well-experienced, much more experienced than we are, but that we have an armor that you have given us um, that will not only protect us, but will enable us to stand victorious. Lord, I pray these last couple of Sundays will be something that you use in our, in our families as we talk together, as parents talk with kids, and as kids even maybe remind parents that we have some great armor because we have a great God that cares about us. God, I'm entrusting this, this Sunday and these last couple to you. In Christ's name, amen. I'm going to share a passage with you for our supper from Genesis chapter 14. It was an ancient warrior. His name was Abram. You may have never thought about Abram as a warrior. Here's a little context for you. Just going back in the, earlier in the chapter, in chapter 14. In the days of Aramphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elessar, Ketoleomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goam, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, and Bersha, king of Gomorrah. Shinad, king of Adma, Shemaber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor, and all these joined forces in the valley of Siddim. Okay? A lot of weird words there, a lot of weird names. Just follow me. Stick with me for a minute. Keep your eye on Abram. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay? Ketaleomer and his kings took all of Sodom and Gomorrah's possessions and all their provisions and went their way. And they also took a young man named Lot, nephew to Abram. They took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions, and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshol and Aner. 
These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. Did you know that Abram was like a high-speed, low-drag warrior? Let me get my boys. Lot's been taken by Ketoleomer and these other kings. Let's go take care of business. Let's get my 318 guys and go high-speed, low-drag, hooking and jabbing, hitting and rolling and take care of business. He divided his forces among them or against them by night. Yeah, I like it. He's even fighting at night. And he is his servants and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people like a boss. Man, did you know that about Abram? He's an old feller at this point, too, taking care of business. Man, I love it. But look what happens next. After his return from the defeat of Ketoleomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava. And Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of the God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram. By God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. This meal that Melchizedek gave uh, Abram at this point was sort of like an ancient version of an MRE. You know what MRE is? Some some of y'all military guys know it. Meal ready to eat. It's in a little olive green plastic wrap that's the only reason you ever really needed a knife was to open that thing. (laughs) Put your knife back and never use it again. Meal ready to eat. That's what it was. Here's some bread and some wine. It was like a good warrior. You took care of business. Man, realize, people of God, that every week we enjoy a good meal, an MRE, if you will. Remembering the words of another warrior and remembering the work of another warrior. He was also of the order of the priest of Melchizedek. He provides the meal to us, and here's what's cool. He is the meal for us. He's who we enjoy and he's what we enjoy in the meal every single week, sustaining us for our ongoing battle against Satan and his ancient army. Let's distribute the elements. I had Marines that had like those big Rambo knives. I served like, it was in the 90s, you know, kind of right after Rambo. These guys had these big Rambo survival knives. and That's all they used them for was pull out, cut an MRE. It's like a sword, you know. I was thinking about, let's pull out our Rambo knives, let's cut open our MRE, and let's enjoy him and enjoy that really he's already been cut for us. Let's enjoy him in faith. Take and eat. Let's take and drink in faith. Let's continue in song. <clears throat>